out yonder, there was this Hua's world, which exists independently of us human beings, and which stands before us like a great eternal riddle. The contemplation of this world beckoned like a liberation. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts here at Europe, Matthew Russell and Julio Aprilia. Oh, yeah, baby, Einstein. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. I'm looking at a tense Julio. Julio, introduce yourself as the Jamie replacement. Uh, so I am the Jamie replacement. <laughs> those are some Those are some big shoes to fill. They're, they're tiny shoes, actually. I think he wears like size three or something. Yes, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous to be your first co-host. It's really after... 200 episodes it's you guys have built something really impressive and like i said some big shoes to fill from jamie's tiny feet and <laughs> yeah why not i can say that i'm nervous but i i'm i was really looking forward to this i i listened to this show almost religiously many times you guys are talking with each other and i just want to interject and add something so this is my chance <laughs> oh yes brilliant with episode 201 and we have a, a, a new co-host this is absolutely genius awesome interview that we've got as well via julio who i should point out is also one of the spodcats possibly the first actual proper spodcat as well yeah, I think I think it was your idea if if I'm honest. I think it was during our trip to 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 Cologne which I said you should be making money out of this. <laughs> and look at you now, millionaire. Millionaire, mi- literally a millionaire laughing yeah. all the way to the uh, And space I got nothing bank. out of it. You know, you never know, you might start getting a cut. <laughs> I think it would not be ethical to uh, to take money from oh, you yeah, hard working uh, people. The worst thing is you probably have to start putting money in. Anyway, Julio, it's, this is yeah, going to come out on yeah. the 4th of September, 4th of September, which I think is, here's my favourite fact of the day, 1998, isn't that far away, is it? Google founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, 1998. That doesn't seem that long ago, does it? Tw- it feels like yesterday. 22 years of Google, that's it. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I came to Europe because I'm originally from Argentina. When I came to Europe, that was 2004. And I think it was that year or the year after that, I just then started using Gmail. So even back then, Google existed, obviously, but it was not such a household name as it is now. Uh, Yeah, time goes very quick. eh? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is insane. But 40 years before that, one of the space legends of the week Jacqueline Hewitt was born, and she was the first person to see an Einstein ring, hence the quote. Do you know what an Einstein ring is, Julio? I'm not an astronomer, but I assume it has to do with the way that we look at objects far away, that the gravity of other objects that might be along our line of sight might change the shapes that we see or the placement of objects. Uh, Absolutely. Correct. So yeah, like a like a just like a normal like glass lens. It's yeah, gravity bending space time. But do you know what? What's really weird about this? I was reading about this. Yeah, the Einstein ring or the Einstein Trousen ring. I don't really know how to pronounce that. The Trousen ring. We'll get onto this Czech guy. Colson. Trousen. Trousen. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Einstein predicted that light would be bent by gravity in 1912. 
but that's four years before general relativity. So I'm still a little bit lost about why Einstein thought light would be bent by gravity at that stage. But yeah, he predicted it in 1912, but it wasn't for another 12 years that this Orest Quolson predicted that you would see a halo ring. So that's the first mention 12 years later in 1924. And then it took another 12 years for Einstein to even mention that. But what is this halo ring that you're talking about? Well, so if if you get it exactly right, if you have a like a, a star or, or a galaxy in between, in, like you said, in the line of sight between something behind it, if it's exactly right, it should bend the light around it in, in equal directions so that you'll get an image of what's behind in a circle all the way around your gravitational object. So could it be, for instance, that we have, uh, we have ourselves, mm. then a black hole along the way, and whatever, some really bright source of light, even behind the black hole, we would be able to see a sort of halo or ring around this black hole. Exactly, exactly. In fact, I think black holes give you really good ones. Black holes even do it to their own accretion disk. So, you know, in mm -hmm. Interstellar, you've got the, you can see the accretion disk behind the black hole and it looks like it's on top because it's, it's being actually gravitationally that lensed behind it. That was the great thing about the Interstellar film is that they were the first people to, to depict it like that, like this crazy way that it bends the light round. It's been a long time since I watched Interstellar, I have to say. Uh, and I can understand that when we look at some stars that are close to our sun, mm. we might see them in a slightly different position than where they actually are, because the sun is bending the light mm. and, and changing it, their, their position across the sky. But this uh, halo ring is very interesting. Have we observed this already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, this Jacqueline Hewitt was the first person to see it. So she saw it in something like... 1988, using the very right. large array. So that was a quasar, which obviously is a black hole, uh, lensed by a nearer galaxy. So there's a galaxy in between us and a quasar, and, and it's that that then came as sort of two separate images either side of this galaxy. And you get some... Uh, Hubble now has taken some amazing ones, like those smiley faces that are really just gravitationally lensed things around and there has been the odd full einstein ring which i think i think they had to wait a little bit later for university of manchester here in the uk actually managed the first um full einstein ring in 1998 using the hubble space telescope so is this something that we can do a field trip and go see one? <laughs> I don't know. We can <laughs> no, no. I don't think you can. I think you need like no, probably you need the, the Hubble. You need at least. big ones. Yeah. But Einstein, when he talked about this this ring, twenty four years after he came up with the idea, he said, "Of course, there is no hope of observing this phenomena directly." And the reason why he thought that is because he because they really only knew about stars and stuff like that. They didn't know about black holes back then. Even Einstein didn't know about black holes. In fact, even funnier, Einstein never heard the phrase black hole. Isn't that weird? It, it is. Yes. Yeah. Especially <laughs> since we come to think of them because of his yeah. theory of general relativity. Yeah, it, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that one? But yeah, 45% chance in on May 2028 that Einstein might be proved wrong again 
just like he was with gravitational waves because he didn't think we'd be able to see them either. Alpha Centauri A, i.e. one of our closest stars to us, is going to pass in front of a, a distant red star and there's a 45% chance in May 2028 that we might actually see an Einstein ring caused by that line of sight, which I think is phenomenal wow. that some astronomers have worked out these tiny little angles. I mean, it's just crazy in actual fact. Yeah, but isn't it uh, astronomy one of the fields where you can really predict things in the long term? We're not talking here uh, weather in our atmosphere that you cannot go further than, yeah, what, seven yeah. days, 15 days. Um, so it's, it's, it's still impressive, and I certainly know where I'm going to be uh, in May 2028. I'm going to be looking at my computer, waiting for the picture to come in. I'll be trying to get into some uh, observatory to see if they let me take a peek. Yep. I wonder if you can. I'd say. Actually, I, I actually wonder. I don't. I don't know if you would be able to see it from a ground-based observatory. No, that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if anyone has the answer to whether you could see it from a ground-based observatory. Because yeah, it's yeah. it's quite hard to even spot Alpha Centauri. To be to be honest, I think you'd need pretty big resolution. I don't know mm. how big the Einstein ring would be around that particular star. I reckon it's minuscule. So I reckon you need at least Hubble to do it. Hubble should still be there by 2028. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We might talk about Hubble when we talk about space salvage at the end of all this. Why not? How ace is our, is our interview with Dave Concanning? T tell us a little bit about Dave before we um, go off into the interview. Even before telling you about Dave, I, I wanted to tell you that I have this, this hidden life. During the day, I am uh, working daily on the topic of, of rockets. I, I work for the European Space Agency, uh, main, mostly on the Ariane and Vega rockets. In fact, last night, uh, because we had a launch of a Vega rocket, I spent the whole night up. So now I'm just being held up by coffee. <laughs> Which is good for your first show. I like it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful experience. Uh, but in this hidden life that I have, I have this secret passion for the common area between space exploration and, and sea and undersea exploration. There is a lot in common there. And so the times that I will be co-hosting with you, if there is another one, <laughs> you, you, will say, you will tell me, uh, I, I, want to, I would like to bring guests that have this connection, that bring the ocean and space together. And Dave is one of these guys. Uh, he's an attorney, but he is also an, a, a professional explorer. He spent his life doing all these things that most people want to do one of them as their biggest achievement. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro before it was a big deal, before it was a, a touristic destination. Uh, he, went, uh, he organized expeditions to the Titanic and recovered artifacts. Uh, he, most important, and why we connected with him, he is the guy behind the recovery of the Apollo F1 engines. These were the engines uh, that were on the first stage of the Saturn V rocket that took us to the moon. And uh, if you remember a few years ago, uh, 
in an effort by, by Jeff Bezos from Amazon fame. Uh, these were recovered and then uh, there was a big communications event about it. Well, it turns out that in August 2010 was the first time when uh, Dave Concanon got contacted by uh, Jeff's people, uh, which he tells the story and I, I think it's, it's, it's very funny. Um, but then it was the 10th anniversary, the 10th anniversary of, of, of this uh, first contact. And I thought it's, it's a fascinating story and I thought it's a good moment to, to, to retell it to a new audience, to know uh, what happened behind the scenes. I, I was reading Dave's uh, biography and it's one of those ones where you actually weep a little bit because you've done so little with your life in comparison. <laughs> there's something quite there's something quite extraordinary about how much he's done because he seems to have a day job as an attorney at the same time as being an explorer and I'm not quite sure how he's juggling all of that but it's it's incredible yeah it's this this personality that you picture of like these guys in the in the in the 30s like yeah it, attorney by day explorer by night it's like a superhero of sorts. Yeah, he, he is a bit of a superhero. And and the best thing was, we woke him up on his birthday to do this as well. <laughs> yes, he, he he was so gracious to to receive us on that day. And well, I, I hope we were not too I, I, I hope we treated him we treated him well. Yeah. And and I love the fact that the very first thing I spot in the background is that he's got a, a nice guitar collection. But before yeah. we get to the interview. He mentions a chap during the interview who's got an intriguing name, Lee Solid, who's 84 and still going strong. And, um, yeah, he mentions Lee Solid. So I, I thought I'll look him up and make him our Space Legend of the Week. And, uh, yeah, he it, it, this is cool. He's a rocket guy, so he's an engine guy. But the funny thing about this is if he set up a engine company of his own, it would be the solid rocket company, but that's not what he does at all. <laughs> no, because he was working mostly on liquid propulsion. Liquid right? propulsion, and one of the big engines that he worked on was the F one that uh, that we'll hear how it got dragged off the ocean floor in a bit. But yeah, he's born nineteen thirty six, so roughly the same sort of age as Neil Armstrong and people like that. So that 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 era of people, I think. 1936 is I think is when he was born. He may have been born in 1935, depending on whereabouts in the year, because I couldn't quite find his um, uh, date of birth, but from any of his bios. But yeah, he's watched pretty much every single major launch, really, because he's been involved with the space program since 1960. So his very first launch was an Atlas intercontinental ballistic missile. He was there for the Apollo 11 launch because he was the base manager for Rocketdyne. Um, and, he's, and so the, part of his job was briefing Von Braun about how they were getting on with the F1s and things like that. It's crazy. That's, that's, that's just insane. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, he was kind of in charge of 33 engines that were on the full stack Saturn V. So you got your J2s, your F1s, the ascent engine on the lunar module as well. So that's that's one of the most important engines there is because if that fails, that's it. You're stranded. You're stranded on, on the, the moon, moon, which is just yes, 
horrendous. <laughs> so, yeah, he was there as a member of the Atlas Mercury team, the Apollo Saturn team. He he put the first American into Earth orbit, John Glenn, 1962. But the the, the thing that he, he seems to be most pleased about is the desire, uh, you know, helping to build the um, space shuttle engine, the SSME, the space shuttle main engines. And he considers those the pinnacle of, of rocket making, the RS-25. So that's his favorite rocket engine. These people, the, the achievements of this generation, if he was born in, in, in 1936, as you say, the year, we, the, the year of the moon landings, he was in his mid-30s. And he had this huge responsibility and huge career already by then. It's, it's always humbling to see uh, these guys. Um, I wonder if he had been involved in any of the, of the wars at the time. Probably not. No, no uh, I don't think he was. No, so he was, he, he'd, he'd gone to college as an engineer, but I think he... He would have been way too young for World War II, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, he, he grew up on a farm in South Dakota. And apparently, a lot of these space companies and military companies loved people from the Midwest of America because they were born on farms and they had this attitude this sort of, you know it was it was hard to be born on a farm and and, and you so you had to have this kind of stoic attitude somehow and so a lot Great. of them ended up working at these these places and of course what was amazing about the apollo era is that a lot of the serious guys didn't think it was going to happen so a lot of the young people got their big break for exactly that reason. If you look at all the people that were involved in Apollo, they're actually really young. Yes, it's, it's, it's one of those, uh, of course, I, I have read and listened to lots of history of the Apollo era times, and, and they always mention that uh, in the mission control room, most people were in their 20s. And if you were one of the managers, you were in your mid-30s, and you were one of the old guys there. Yeah. It's just yeah, I mean, it's 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 a mind. Blowing. <laughs> it is a bit mind blowing. Yeah, his his wife. He met his wife Shirley at high school. They have childhood sweethearts. So they got a few kids. Tried out architecture first, and then just got a phone call from Rocketdyne in California. And and when he got the phone call, he's up to his knees in snow, working on a farm. Someone from California phones and says, "Do you fancy coming out to the sunshine?" So he thought, "Well, why not?" <laughs> He genuinely, apparently never really thought about being, you know, he never thought about space and stuff like that. It was, he got into engineering because of the farming thing and, and then ended up, he went to the Dakota School of Mines and Tech. He must be one of their most famous <laughs> alumni, I would have thought. Um, but yeah, so he, yeah, he, he went on to do just these amazing things and become, eventually he was sort of very, very high up at Rockwell and Rocketdyne. So, you know, he's he's had a stellar career of which, you know, some of the world's most amazing rocket engines built under his kind of tenure and, and the person looking after it. And as we'll hear, he kept some of his document, kept some of the documents that were valuable for this for this search. It's just amazing. His story that I thought was really fascinating was that the big engineering problem of the F1 is the fact that they sort of vibrate themselves to death 
because of the the sort of fuel injector has this sonic mm-hmm. wave that moves across it and smashes it to to bits because it's three feet. Obviously, the F1 is just this enormous, the most powerful rocket engine ever built by quite a long way. Uh, but the instability just meant it would blow itself apart. And they, by setting explosions off inside the, the combustion chamber, were able to sort of work out how to solve this problem, which solved it for everyone. So the Russians, everyone used this piece of data that they sort of gathered in trying to solve the way that they absorbed these sonic shock waves that were traveling inside the in, inside the rocket engine but that's that's what's great about science once you solve the problem somewhere yep everyone else can learn from it by the way matt at some point you mentioned the rs25s mm-hmm. those uh were the engines of the space shuttle indeed correct yep, yep. so they were designed uh to be reusable yep okay what it's interesting now is that these same engines will be used for the SLS rocket. So it means that these re, this, this designed for reusability engines will end up on the ocean floor. It's mad, isn't it? Which brings us back to <laughs> our interview, which is about someone who goes and recovers rocket engines from the ocean floor. Indeed. Our guest today, Dave Concanon. And he does mention Lee Solid at some point, as you said, and there are some funny stories behind that. I wonder what Lee Solid thinks about the RS-25s ending up on the ocean floor. I mean, literally, he loves the RS-25. It's uh, And it's not surprising. It really is just like a monument. He thinks it's that it is it. That's as far as you can get chemical rocket propulsion. That That's as good as you can get it. The RS-25, you can maybe make minor improvements, but that is it. That's the kind of pinnacle of chemical rocket engine design. Okay, and what does he think about uh, nowadays rocket engines? Yeah, I saw an interview where he was describing Musk's, Musk's things like the Merlin and stuff like that. He says he, he can go up to them and see all the heritage on them. So he could, look at, he could look at a Merlin engine and say, yeah, that's from Rocketdyne, that's from so-and-so, that's from so-and-so. They're all just made up of things that, that have been done before. And he said that the Falcon 1 failures could have been avoided had musk actually talked to them talked to the other engineers more the people that had done it before because the problems that they had actually had already been solved by people like lee solid which i thought was really interesting it is really interesting Uh, and if you say that he's still going strong he sounds like an amazing candidate for an interview in the future no absolutely yeah we definitely need lee solid on He's even worked on nuclear engines as well. He even worked on the Minerva nuclear engine. He did it all. He did everything. Shall we have a listen to uh, our interview with Dave Concanon? Yeah, I'd say let's listen to Dave's interview and then we can go back to Lee after we hear those stories if we need to. And a bit of salvaging space and how it relates to stuff in that. I think we need to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, let's go Let's go for that interview. I can't wait. Akute. The interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space i'm joined on the podcast with julio my guest co-host and david concannon who is an attorney and an explorer with a really really interesting story welcome to the show david 
thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making this my birthday present. Can't be your birthday today. Yes, it is. First thing in the morning, get up, make the bed and do this podcast. Oh, well, well, happy birthday. Well, let's uh, let's thank make you. this uh, super happy birthday-esque. You seem to have uh, combined being a lawyer and an attorney and explore exploration. So how did you get into exploration? Are you like me? Did you watch Jacques Cousteau a lot? And uh, what was the what's <laughs> how what's your background leading up to the Apollo searches? Well, I am like you. I did. Uh, I grew up uh, kind of a, a um, uneventful childhood, and we were we were very poor, um, broken home, no father. And I, I was a dreamer. I was always looking for, for something better than my circumstances. And I watched Jacques Cousteau. I watched Sea Hunt. I watched everything that I could ab- I absorb about space. I remember one of my earliest memories is watching the, the Apollo 11 landing. And I was only four years old. And my mother you know, got me out of bed to watch sit at the television at 11 o'clock at night to watch that. And I had a grandfather on my mother's side who was fascinated with the world. And so, and it's very special because I told you the story yesterday, I was actually in this place yesterday morning where there was a shipwreck along the beach where he lived a couple blocks from, from his home. And he would walk me up there as a child. And here's a man who was afraid to swim, would never go in the water, but you could see the pillar post from the shipwreck that was a hundred years old that had come from China, this far off and exotic place. And he would show me that as a boy and say, Look at this. Look at where this came from. Look at the stories. Think of the stories it could tell. And here it is in front of you, and you can see this piece of history. And then we would go a mile in the other direction to the little airport, and we would walk up and down the flight line together. And he would say, that's a Mooney, that's a Cessna, that's a Piper. And he was, he'd never flown in an aircraft before because he was afraid to fly. But he wanted to impart this love of, of exploration and adventure and aviation and the sea in this little boy and he succeeded. So, uh, you know, the, later on my mother succeeded in getting my brother and I scholarships to the, a boys camp in New Hampshire that was on a lake. And that's where I started really understanding what I was capable of. And I was outdoors a lot, well, constantly and hiking and climbing and swimming and diving. And I started scuba diving at this camp and snorkeling. I found my first shipwreck underwater and this was where I could, I could realize my potential, and I really enjoyed that. So I never planned on being a lawyer. I, I did plan on going to university, and I'm the only person in my family that ever did. And um, I have a finance degree, but the stock market crashed. So I ended up in law school to wait out the recession. And I hate lawyers. I hate I dislike them intensely. And so I didn't like the students I was with. They were boring and snobbish and uh, very special people. Their mothers would tell them from the time they were little. And I just couldn't stand it. So I decided to get out of law school early by going to study in Africa and studying in international environmental law and international trade and finance. And I, and I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. This was back in the 80s before it was really popular. And then the following year, I studied at The Hague in Europe at the, the Peace Palace, the International Court of Justice, and I graduated early. But while I was in Africa, 
I worked out in the field on elephant conservation initiatives and surveys to determine the population of elephants. And this experience qualified me for membership in the Explorers Club in New York City, which is um, it's now an organization with over 3,000 members in 24 chapters around the world, and it's over 100 years old, and it's the first two people to walk on the moon, first two people to climb Mount Everest, first two people to reach the Marianas Trench, and little old me. Um, I was a young lawyer at this time, and I was one of only three lawyers in the club, and I quickly became the club's general counsel. And that propelled me into uh, major expeditions, helping people get expeditions off the ground. Uh, I became friends with people like Buzz Aldrin and Scott Carpenter and um, lots and lots of astronauts. And, and Buzz, at one point, said you should get into space law. And, uh, and next thing you know, I was general counsel of the XPRIZE Foundation. I, f- I find those sort of journeys really interesting because presumably you never planned it to be like that, that these sort of your, your, your life just sort of unfolded in that way. I just planned not to be poor. I just planned not to be uh, stuck and not have uh, opportunities. So I went through my entire life, instead of saying, why should I do something? I'd say, why not? So somebody would ask, say, you know, would you like to study in Kenya? And I'd say, well, why not? You know, and not look for an answer to that question, but just go do it and see where and it took a very meandering path through life. But opportunities, if you're open to them, come to you. And if you don't talk yourself out of it, then you will pretty soon realize you're doing it. And then, it, you know, the, the stone rolls downhill. Before we, I guess, before we get to Apollo, we have to mention Titanic because I noticed that you that obviously that's got to be a big part of your your build up to this. It is. It was very early on in my membership in the Explorers Club. I was sitting at a board of directors meeting with Don Walsh, who is a hero of mine. And and in 1960, he was the captain and the pilot of the Bathysk of Trieste, made the deepest dive in history with Jacques Picard, and uh, I cherish my relationship with Don, and that's another thing. There, I've had mentors along the way, like Don Walsh and Buzz Aldrin, and and others that have helped me. And I've uh, I'm a good listener, so I follow their advice. But Don was going to go to the Titanic, and there was a lawsuit over access, and he asked me if I could help him, and I said yes. And that brought me on a different journey, where I ended up taking this case all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States and winning lawsuit over access to the wreck and other historic shipwrecks. And after I won the case, the company that I beat asked me if I would work for them and would I organize their expedition to the Titanic because um, I seemed to be have a, a knack for that. So I said yes, and I immediately hired all the defendants from the prior lawsuit, and we did the 2000, year 2000 expedition to the Titanic to recover artifacts. And then... You know, that stone just kept rolling. And then Jim Cameron asked me if I would help him. So I helped him with his 2001 and 2005 expeditions. And um, then I, Jim asked me to go out with the U.S. government in 2003. So I, long story short, I ended up doing three expeditions to the Titanic and being an advisor to eight or ten expeditions. And 
I would go and I made four dives to the wreck site, explored five miles on the bottom. And, you know, that was part of the job. I have to say it was, it was, it was a, a good part of the job. Well, it seems to be a simple question, but I'm afraid it might be a complicated answer. When you go to these wrecks and you recover something, who owns that? Technically, the person that owned it when it went underwater still owns it. If you follow the American system of justice and the British uh, uh, admiralty laws, and even the French in most most European nations, there's been the law of admiralty has developed over 2,000 years. And it's essentially the person that lost it still owns it. There's, if you, you're either entitled, but by recovering it from underwater, you're entitled to a reward. And if the person that owned it doesn't come forward to pay you a reward, you can receive the item as the reward. Otherwise, you can receive uh, financial compensation or some other type of compensation as the reward. That's the simplest way to describe admiralty law. Finders keepers on the one hand and a salvage reward on the other hand. It's one or the other. So places like Greece and Iran and other places, they own it. If it's underwater, they own it. <laughs> it's on their land, they own it. But... The UK and the US and France don't follow that system. Yeah, that's, in, that's so, interesting. Uh, how how do they decide what the reward is, though? So so NASA go uh, here's his ten p for that. Well, how do you what do you refuse? But generally, you put in submit evidence to the court on what it costs to recover something. For example, if Hurricane Laura just hit North, hit Louisiana yesterday, if a boat loses its mooring and it's floating in the bay, if you go out and save that boat, tow it to shore, you're entitled to compensation. You would say to the court, well, I spent this much money on gas. I went out in a hurricane. I put my life at risk. I'm entitled to my costs plus some sort of a bonus for putting out this effort. And the court makes a decision. And and the value of the boat could be 500 us dollars and your effort could be a thousand us dollars so you get the boat basically or if nobody shows up to claim it you get the boat it's that simple i just gave away all my secrets <laughs> that's amazing but i so okay we, we you, you've done the titanic now the, the the sort of one that we're i guess for the interplanetary podcast is super interested in is is this amazing story of the recovery of the Apollo 11 engines, the F1, yeah. these legendary F1 engines that put man on the moon. So how did that all start? And, and did that blow your mind from the moment, from the moment you got the phone call or, or the letter or how, how, how did it all unfill? It, it's a very funny story actually, because it was 10 years ago this week, late August of 2010, I was in my office outside Philadelphia, and I got two phone calls that day. The first was from somebody that told me a fantastic story about how the Knights Templar sailed up the Delaware River to the port of Philadelphia and settled America long before anybody else. And, and it was obvious that this person um, was uh, odd and 
and so it was a fantastic story, but I really wasn't interested. And it was a slow day, so the so and that doesn't happen very often, actually. So they got the weird night Templar story, and I thought that was interesting. I'll go to lunch. I came back from lunch, I get another phone call, and this is a, a woman who won't identify herself, won't identify where she's from or where she's calling from, and she asks me if it's possible to recover an F1 engine. And I thought to myself, sure. I mean, F1 racing, Honda makes them, McLaren makes them, Williams makes them. You know, I'm sure you can get yourself an F1 engine. I just don't know why you're asking me this question. (laughs) But it's a slow day, and I'll talk to you because I'm bored, and this is better than the last guy. So um, I told her, and she paused, and then she said, no, 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 an Apollo F1 engine. The race team Apollo. So I thought, so I Googled it. I didn't tell her I was Googling it. I thought, oh, that. And so I said, yeah, sure. It's, it's possible to, to recover an F1 engine. Um, does anybody know where they are? No, no. NASA didn't track them. We, we know where they were going, but that we don't know where the, uh, where they, they landed. So so the next question was, how would you do it? And I said, that's a longer answer. That's going to take some research. So we took some time and we 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 answered the question. She gave me a fake company name and a fake name and all that. So about two weeks later, they called back and they uh, this was her boss's. And it was it turned out to be Jeff Bezos's family office. And they said, well, Jeff is really interested in finding and recovering the engines from Apollo 11. And like I did when I was four, he watched the landing when he was five. And he attributes this to, to being a, the seminal moment in his life that was the catalyst for all of his success that followed. And he figured that if we could bring back a flown object that could tell the story of the, of the achievement and, and everything, um, that that would perhaps inspire some other five-year-old or some other person to do something significant, do something great. And so he got the idea, and uh, and so first question is, was it possible? Yes. How would you do it? Longer answer because it's nobody tracked them. NASA kind of estimated where they might fall, but they might as well have said they would be in Pittsburgh because they were nowhere near where they estimated. They're fourteen thousand feet deep, um, so that's what nearly is four thousand five hundred meters um, deeper than Titanic. Titanic is 882 feet long, off to use American measurements. Um, and so it's it's a lot larger than an F1 engine, and it still took three or four expeditions to find it, even though the Titanic was sending out its location in its distress signals. And so they had a pretty good idea of where the Titanic should be on the surface, but it was 4,000 meters deep. These are now, we don't know where they landed on the surface, they're only six meters if they're intact and they're deeper. So we had to look very hard at that, whether the technology existed. It pretty much did not. Whether it was commercially available to David Concanon, and it pretty much was not. So we, we gave them some ideas and we ended up developing. This, the deep water sonar 
in high resolution to be used on the, the search expedition. And we developed the deep water camera systems and the deep water lighting systems. And we refurbished the ship. And then we, we were able to charter a second one that was purpose-built. Um, and so there was a logistical puzzle that we put together every day for three years. I worked on it, and eventually we planned three expeditions, and we ended up doing two. One fell out because of weather. Unfortunately, Neil Armstrong was supposed to join us on that, and he died a month later, so that was sad. Um, yeah, and then he, Jeff said, will you do it? And I said, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost got an echo of the Apollo missions themselves, isn't it? It's like someone asking you to do something that's not really possible <laughs> to, to start with. It very much was. And and so the, the problem was, you know, we were, I told Jeff, we're going to score touchdowns in both end zones, to use a football analogy, American football analogy, because we're going to, we're going to really do something significant in the ocean exploration that's, that's unprecedented. And we're going to pay homage to something in space exploration that is unprecedented. And we don't know what we're going to find. We don't know what condition they're going to be in. We don't know whether they'll, what kind of story they'll tell because we knew they were going to look pretty rough. We didn't know if they would be intact. We didn't know. Um, and it was, we also didn't know in the beginning, but we quickly learned that we, he wanted the engines from Apollo 11. But to find the engines from Apollo 11, you also have to find Apollo 4, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 16. And then from the, the remnants of those Apollo missions, with all, they all went up and the first stages came down in the same area, you had to separate out the engines from all those missions and spe- specifically find Apollo 11. So you're looking not only for the needle in the haystack, but the eye of the needle in the haystack. And you have to develop, and you have to do it in secret. <laughs> we couldn't tell anybody. We couldn't speak to NASA. We couldn't speak to anyone. We had to do this completely with information that was available on the internet through via Google. Yeah, I I, I wanted to ask you about that because uh, Jeff Bezos' projects seem yes. to be quite discreet until you have something, something that you achieve, something to show. And I was curious on how did that go? You you started answering right now, but uh, how how does it work to have all the, to have to do all this work in secrecy? Well, it was it was interesting because uh, one of the mandates was that nobody could know that Jeff Bezos was behind it. So when I was looking for uh, sonar systems and ships and and remotely operated vehicles and information. The, the person asking the question was David Cuncannon of Explorer Consulting. It wasn't Jeff Bezos. It wasn't Bezos Expeditions. It wasn't his, you know, it was me. And so I had to do, you know, and who am I? I'm a lawyer and an explorer. I, some, I have a good reputation in, in, in the circles of, of people that do this on a regular basis, but they still see me as a lawyer. They still see me as somebody who's working for a client. And when I went out, into this, the, the world of ocean exploration. And a lot of people in sea space were the first people I contacted, this organization that we belong to, Julio and I. Uh, I'd say to them, look, I'm asking the question. You can't ask me who I'm asking it for. If you do ask me who I'm asking it for, I'm going to hang up the phone and not speak to you again about this. 
And most of the people took my reputation and my name and my, my personal connection to them and said, okay, that's fine. Some didn't. And I would say, okay, thank you. And hang up the phone. And that was it. Uh, Woods Hole got that treatment. Woods Hole, uh, one call. And they came back and they said, we want to know who you're working for. And I said, okay, well, thanks for your time and hung up. And that was the end of it. So it was very difficult. It, it was exceedingly difficult. But we, I pulled in a couple of key advisors. And the core group was four or five people, most at, including me. Eventually, we had over 100 people working for us on the project. When we did the search in 2011, uh, I didn't tell them what we were looking for. I didn't tell the sonar team or the ship what we were looking for. They had contractors in work rehabbing the, the vessel. They wanted to know. They wanted to know who I was. They wanted to know what this was for. And we wouldn't tell them. And eventually, they, they, they got the idea that we were searching for Spanish galleons and treasure. So I didn't lie to them, but I let them, I helped them to believe that by bringing, when we go down to the visit the ship that was being rehabbed in Virginia, I would bring books on Spanish galleons and I would bring uh, engineering drawings of, of Spanish galleons. And I would put the books in the, in the research lab and I'd hang the pictures up and leave. They come back two weeks later and the books are disturbed and the pictures are fingerprints on them and things like that. So I let them believe what they wanted to believe and help them to believe what they wanted to believe. And then two days out to sea, after we left and they couldn't communicate with land anymore, I took all those pictures down and put up this gigantic eight-foot-long engineering drawing of the S1C first stage. And they never believed that that's what we were actually looking for. They always thought, yeah, he's, he thinks he's so smart. We're looking for Spanish galleons. We're not falling for this rocket thing. If I was there, I would think it's more believable to be looking for Spanish galleons and spaceships. <laughs> oh, sure. They, they, were, they thought this rocket nonsense. That's, I didn't just fall off the back of a truck. I didn't fall out of a tree. I don't believe that. But they never knew Jeff was behind it until um, almost a year later when we announced to the world that we had found them. And I sent messages out to my search team and said, I owe each of you a Kindle because – this is who we've been doing this project for. And, you know, unfortunately, only two people, including, well, three people, including myself from the search, went on the recovery, which gets all the uh, attention because Jeff was on the recovery with his family and we were out for a month. And, you know, it, it, but of the two expeditions that we ended up doing, I, th I thought that the search was more, uh, was better, frankly. I thought it was the best. I never had fun during this project at all, <laughs> but I all, it was always interesting. It was always fulfilling, but I thought the search expedition was, was more fulfilling and more, more uh, interesting than the recovery. So there's another um, I, secret. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the really fascinating bit there is the fact that NASA, NASA weren't involved at all. That, 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 I mean, how did you, how did you know that they hadn't tracked things? How did you know? I mean, there must have been some information that they kept that, that could have been useful for trying to pinpoint where they landed. 
Yes. So, so two things. It's been 10 years since I started this project, and I still have never spoken to NASA in any kind of an official capacity. And it's kind of funny because I have given presentations at NASA facilities, but I've never talked to anyone. I, I saw Charlie Bolden, who was the administrator of NASA, at the 50th anniversary dinner at the National Air and Space Museum. We were seated at the same table, and he said, his eyes got huge. And he said, you're the guy. I know who you are. I know your name. Oh, it's great to meet you. And I said, thank And he's retired now. So I said, just thanks for not getting in our way. Um, we said nothing to them ever, 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 ever. And the reality is that NASA has moved on. They're, the, the people who, who worked on the Apollo project are no longer there. They're retired and they're, they're dying off, which is sad. I, I did speak to them last September in, in Huntsville. Alabama, and I was delighted to speak to the the retirees from this program. These are the people we were paying homage to, and and boy, was that a, a tough crowd for me. I was scared to death, but um, nobody at NASA knew anything, so there really wasn't anything they could give us. Now, what they did do is they were helpful. They they put every single document that they had saved, not that they had generated, but that they had saved online. And we had access to a lot of the, the flight plans. And there were, there were always estimates about where these things would come down and tables on page 27 or something that you could look at. And they're actually reproduced on Wikipedia because people have nothing to do, apparently, and put them on Wikipedia. But um, so we had documents to look at, but we didn't have uh, any anybody we could really talk to until a friend of mine who was the flight director at Kennedy Space Center for from Gemini through Apollo through Space Shuttle started putting me in touch with the people from Rocketdyne that built the engines, their retirees network. They literally called themselves the Pancake Breakfast Club. All the retirees would get together and have pancake breakfast on Sunday and talk about old times. So he hooked me into this network and I eventually uh, got to meet a man named Lee Solid. Lee was Rocketdyne's uh, manager at Kennedy Space Center from Mercury all the way through shuttle. And he was responsible for all the launches for the entire American space program. He only missed two launches when his children were bored, but he was at every other one. Wow. And Lee was a treasure trove of, of information. And if I had a question, I actually tapped Buzz Aldrin at one point for something important. I didn't tell him why I needed it, but he, he gave me the answer I needed. It was, it was a key answer. Uh, what, is, what does nominal mean to an astronaut? I needed to know that answer. Kathy Sullivan and, and uh, Buzz both gave me the answer, but without knowing why. Um, but Lee Solid was the last guy to touch these engines, literally put his hands on them before they went off into space. And he kept a lot of the material that he needed for his job. And I mean, in his 1972 Ford pickup truck is where he's kept his archives under the back seat. <laughs> and, you know, I'd ask him a question. I there was We needed to know, for example, I'll tell you a story. Um, the, uh, the thermal protection system on the outside of the engines, we needed to know what it was made out of. And, because we need to know what it would look like on sonar. What would what would it reflect when it, you know, how would it show? 
And secondly, what were its galvanic properties? What would it do underwater for 49 years? Was it a sympathetic anode? Was it, you know, how would it react to things around it? And third, was it made from asbestos, which is a hazardous material? And, you know, if it is, then Dave's asbestos removal service needs to be called in to make sure it doesn't come on board the ship for health and safety reasons. So I called Lee and said, there's a book that you used to hang the thermal protection system, a blade of blankets on the engines at the, at the Cape and it tells you how to do it, but I can't find it anywhere. It's it was never scanned. It was just, it doesn't exist. And he thought for a minute, he said, I, you know what? I have that out in my truck. Just a minute. And I heard him put the phone down and go thump, 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 footsteps, a door slam, another car door open, car door slam, the screen door open, slam, footsteps. He comes back. He's like, I got it right here. I'll take it down and make a photocopy. I'll scan it and send it to you from Kinko's copies. And, and three days later, it showed up at my office. And here was the, you know, this, uh, this, this document that we really needed. And it came from the back of Lee's pickup truck. Wow. So, yeah. So a lot, before you've even set out to sail, you, you're, you're having to do a lot of this detective work and and getting contact with the right people i mean was 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 lee asking questions was lee quizzing you about why you wanted to know well i had the authority to bring into the project whomever i felt was necessary with the caveat that they worked for me and that they signed a non-disclosure agreement for the project most of these people there was a point at which they knew Jeff was behind it because we announced it to the world. Um, but they still worked for me and they still, uh, and I answered to Jeff or to somebody, but one person beneath Jeff was who I would deal with on a regular basis. But Jeff was the, the final. Um, so not Amazon or anybody else, but I could, I could do that. And the nice thing about these, these folks from that era is they're used to working on secret projects. They're used to keeping their mouths closed and not bragging about it. They're the great unsung heroes of the, of the space program. And they're, they are amazing people. And I deeply, deeply respect them. And they're from a, a different generation than from mine. I'm 55 today. And certainly a different generation from our children. They're solid, solid people. And uh, so they never batted an eyelash. Once somebody vouched for me to Lee and said, I know Dave, he's a good guy. You can trust him. Everything, the keys to the kingdom were given to me through this, this retirees network and anything we needed, Lee would get on the phone to somebody else and it would come from this pancake breakfast network of retirees from rocket time. And it was magnificent, and it was we would never have been successful without them, ever. And it went like that, and and so that makes me very very proud of this this project because it really was dealing with the people that put these rockets in, up in the air and and on the moon to pay homage to their work, and they were fifty fifty behind it or against it which I did not expect there was, there was some real resistance. And Lee explained to me one time, Lee solid that you have to understand David, that these gentlemen are 
they're older, they're retired, their friends are dying, their their life's greatest work was in this achievement. And the last time they saw these engines, they were launching off the Cape and on their way to the moon and taking three men to the moon and on something and they did it successfully without fail. And that's what that's the memory they want to have. They don't want to see what they look like today because they know what they're going to look like today. And they feel like they will be less than what they than what the glory that they saw on the day they were launched. And and that was a very uh, entrenched feeling among a very large number of these gentlemen and ladies, mostly gentlemen, until after we brought them up and after they were put on display. And I have to say that now uh, I have yet to meet anybody that has said, I wish you didn't do that in that group. And I have made the pilgrimages to them to speak to them, to talk to them on my own dime. I'm not getting paid for it anymore about this to pay homage to their work and it's a real thrill when somebody walks up to you this little old guy and he's barely able to amble up to you and he says thank you and he's got a german accent and he was on von braun's team in huntsville or you meet the person that was in charge of 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 um the program or I mean, they're just every single one of them is amazing. Yeah, I'm, to speak to. <laughs> imagine, imagine the life journey of the von Braun's team. That just doesn't bear. It's just mind blowing. It really is, and, and and I've had Apollo astronauts, a lot of Apollo astronauts, thank me, reach out, find me, and thank me for this. And I did not expect that at all. Uh, Jim Lovell and and uh, Al Warden and. Uh, you know, both of the remaining astronauts from Apollo 12 who then died within months, Buzz Aldrin. Buzz was the only guy who was like, why did you do that? <laughs> but, but Neil was on board and, and his kids were on board. And um, I, Michael Collins was very gracious. And, and, and they, that's a, for that little boy who watched the Apollo landing was four years old and who was taken to the flight line in Ocean City, New Jersey by his grandfather, to be known by Michael Collins or Al Warden or Jim Lovell, they know my name and they know what I did and they thank me for doing it. I mean, that doesn't, that I don't have, I have a hard time getting my head around that. Yeah. That's, that's just truly epic, isn't it? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to get my own head around it for you. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, I feel a little bit like, um, I have felt this this kind of a sadness because I I was offered an award personally for the same award that was given to, to Robert uh, Robert Ballard for finding the Titanic uh, called the Citation of Merit for an outstanding feat of exploration. I know where I was the day the Titanic was found. I I I bought into the Bob Ballard found the Titanic thing for a long time. So when I was offered that award, I thought that was pretty significant. You know, here you are in the same class with your heroes. But I also thought you can't accept this because you weren't out there alone in a canoe. It, so I turned it down. I, I declined. Uh, and then I said, but I would support the award going to the team. 
And they said, well, we, you know, we haven't done that in 50 years. And I said, well, who did you do it for the last time? Well, the first American team to summit Mount Everest in 1963. And I said, well, I think it's about time. So the award went to the entire team of 100. And I gave every single one of them a, a medal for that. Um, and I feel that that's appropriate. So when I say I did this and I did that, I really kind of I am conflicted about that. Um, because I didn't do it alone. I did it with all these other people. So I tried to give them as much credit as possible. There were 105 people that worked on this project, and every one of them was 1,000% committed, and that's why we were successful. So that is my what I'm most proud of, by far. And when you look at Jeff's, the thanks that he gave me personally for this, he thanked me for putting together the team. And that's all the credit I wanted. And that's exactly the credit I want. The engines themselves. So all the, all the stuff that you picked up off the ocean floor. I mean, we, we, we barely got into even how on earth you, you, you found them or chose which bits to bring up. I mean, how did you choose which bits to bring up and, and, and know what's significant and know what's not significant? I mean, I'm, yeah, so here's another funny story. We go out on the recovery expedition in February, March 2013. We're out for a month, and Jeff is with us. And Jeff brings his mother, his father, his brother, his uh, brother-in-law, and uh, two people from Amazon. For some reason, we had the, the memos that went back and forth to Seattle or just epic. But we had said after... To October 2011, we did the search. By March, we identified the engines to 2011, put them in a memo in May 2012. Here we are in March 2013, and the engines from Apollo 11 we found in the first hour of the first day again, right where we said they would be. First out. ROV gets down to the bottom. That took five hours. And there they are. However... They're not intact. And we're all looking at them, and we're, look, we're just like a bunch of dogs looking at a television set saying, but heads cocked, thinking, why aren't they intact? They're not intact. It's not a whole engine. But then in, within inst instantly, we started to realize, well, they were going how many thousands of miles an hour, and they were superheated. And they hit the ocean hard, and then they were, you know, it's like if you've ever been dumb enough to take Pyrex out of the microwave and put it in water, which I've done, it explodes. So it's, of course, they're not intact. So then we readjusted, and we went, and we looked for, for engines. The problem is we couldn't identify them to Jeff's satisfaction as being from Apollo 11. They were right where we said they would be. They were, um, I won't tell you look too much about that because we do keep that confidential but they were identifiable i think we found four from apollo 11 on the first couple hours but they weren't marked in a way that you could say you know there was no sign with an arrow and we pulled one up on the first day and it had numbers on it serial numbers on it that were from apollo 12 2050, the rocket dime number, and that was an engine off Apollo 12. Well, Apollo 12 is supposed to be seven miles away on the other side of a ridge and uh, 2,000 feet shallower. So how did an engine from Apollo 12 get here where Apollo 11 is supposed to be? 
And that's when the storm hit. That's when Winter Storm Saturn nailed us. And we sat in Winter Storm Saturn for eight days. And eventually, the seas just kept building and building and building, and the winds kept building and building and building for eight solid days. And eventually, they peaked out at about 60 knot winds and um, 18 meter seas. Sustained for five days. Not, not on one day. Now, there's a five-day weather graph that we would get by fax, and I showed it to Jeff, and it was just a solid line just going all the way up to the top at 50-50 and in five days. And, with, and on the fifth day, he said, what's going to happen in, after that? I said, I'll, I'll show you tomorrow. I'll ask me tomorrow because I don't know. But it's going to be at the top of the chart, and it stayed there. So we were stuck, and we had to ride out this big storm that parked on us for, for a week. And so we, we had a dart throwing contest for lack of something else. And then when we got back down to answer your question about how did um, my team felt that, you know, we'd found what we come to look for, even though the numbers were off, that was a, an anomaly in that data point. Not that, and, um, but we decided to go out and look around to all the other areas. And maybe if Apollo 11 is not where we think it is here, maybe it's in these other areas. So we went around the ocean for three weeks looking at engines, trying to identify them by their serial numbers. And we found engines from Apollo 12, Apollo 13, Apollo 16, uh, Apollo 9, 10. And eventually, I think we found 16 engines that we were able to – we found 35 on sonar, but we looked at 16 with the video. We're running out of time. And we made the determination that we would recover two complete engines, enough of the parts to build two engines back together again. And then we would hedge our bets and get the thrust chambers from as many as we could. So we decided, well, which ones are the most complete? Which ones look the best? Literally had 16 of them on a piece on a poster, and we just picked them out of that. We went back and we recovered those first and got enough parts to rebuild two of them on display. We wanted one to go to Seattle, and we knew that the museum, uh, the NASA would keep one. So we ended up recovering six engines to hedge our bets, but two complete engines based on what looked the best and what might be from 11. And brought them in and put them in conservation for about a year and did a lot of research. And it turns out that we've, the very first engine that we recovered because it was the most complete, it was still attached to the heat shield was the center engine from Apollo 11, 2044. And the first engine that we recovered on the first day before the storm hit was a side engine from Apollo 11. Uh, 6051 was the rock was the final NASA number. So we had 6050 and 6051. We also recovered engines from Apollo 13, 12, and 16. And that's, that's how we'd selected them. Which ones looked, which ones were the most complete? So, <laughs> so. <laughs> that must have been a magical moment when the serial number, when someone's first looking at the serial number and going, do you know what? This is actually an Apollo 11 one. That must have, that must have actually have been just, gloriously good news for particularly for jeff bezos that i mean that must have been the money shot right there right also a great story because it didn't happen at sea 
um, you know, for instance, if I give you a Titanic story, I recovered first officer William Murdoch's bag, that his personal bag. He was on the bridge when the Titanic struck the iceberg, and he did not survive. Uh, in the movie Titanic, he shot himself on deck. Well, I found his bag. It took 12 years to identify it as being his bag. And I told Jeff this story just to lower expectations. So it took several months from when we were came back in. We Most of the engines we recovered had serial numbers on them. Some did not. Some had confusing numbers on them. Uh, the center engine from 11, 2044, had no visible numbers on it. But there was a guy... In, in the Kansas cosmosphere, this phenomenal, abs- I think it's the best space and aviation museum in the world, and I've been to a lot of them. He just got out of the U.S. Air Force, young guy, asked for a job. They gave him a job literally hosing down the artifacts and, and doing the conservation. He was puzzled by this, and he had worked in an auto body mechanics shop. And one of his jobs was to find leaks in, in radiators. And to do that, he would put a black light down on the radiator and the, or the dirt and the organic material rust would collect on the bottom at the leak and it would fluoresce under the black light. So he thought, well, maybe the paint from the 1960s was made of organic material and not synthetic material. And maybe if I run a black light over it, it'll fluoresce. And I can see more than I can see with the naked eye. And the visible spectrum is this. So maybe if I get some yellow safety glasses and a black light. So he did. He went to the auto parts store on his way to work, got a black light, got a pair of yellow safety glasses, went to work, turned off all the lights, and ran a black light over all the engines, and boom, up pops the number 2044. Only visible under a black light. And here it is. It's a center engine from Apollo 11. And they took a photo of it with a phone and sent it to me. And I sent it to Jeff and said, you're never going to believe this. But I love this guy. He's like 25 years old. He's just, you know, just somebody's thinking that day, maybe I'll try this. What do I have to lose? And it cracked the mystery. It completely saw, you know. Uh, and, and And it's so appropriate. Yeah, that just yeah, that is brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that's just that's just one of those moments in it that you just go, ah, oh, well done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna buy you a beer for the rest of your life every night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where 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 have all these where have all these engines actually ended up? Where what's what, have, have, are they all on display or 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 some of them still in storage or? Yes to both. Um, most are on display. The Seattle Museum of Flight has, they opened their display and I opened it for them with them in 2014 or 15. Um, and then they, uh, I get the, we did two things. They, 2017, I'm sorry. We opened, they have a dedicated Apollo place at the Museum of Flight, which is also a phenomenal institution, really impressive. We opened that in 2017, and Jeff came and he spoke to school children, which is, was always his goal. That's how he introduced it on a Saturday morning to a bunch of kids. And I was there, and, and you know, he thanked me. And then I did all the press and all the, all the, the banquets and things like that. 
2019. So there's two engines in Seattle, one from 11, one from 12. There, and one is on display and one is not. The other items, mostly from Apollo 11, are in this traveling exhibition with the Apollo 11 command module, which was making its way around the U.S. for two years. While there were a new wing at the National Air and Space Museum is being built in Washington, D.C., and that is going to be dedicated to Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. And most of the Apollo 11 artifacts are going on display there when it opens. It hasn't opened because of COVID, but it will. Kansas Cosmosphere has those artifacts on display now until they're ready to go to Washington. And then there is... There are some other stragglers that are out there. I know they were given to NASA. I thought they were going to go on display at the Kennedy Space Center, but I have not heard confirmation that they have. So, so there you go. We got two in Seattle, one in Kansas. Probably the other two are floating around with NASA. My personal preference is that they go out on tour. People get to see them internationally as well. Do you, have, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite engine? I have at least favorite engine. The, what's your least favorite? I, engine? <laughs> my least favorite engine. I really kind of I got sick of Apollo twelve because <laughs> Apollo twelve kept showing up like a bad penny everywhere we were, and 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 we thought that the twenty fifty engine was from Apollo. I never did. Uh, other people who I won't name did, who were certain, and they were not right, but they were always certain, and. <laughs> I was very happy to tell them they were wrong and I was right. Now, it took a while, but um, so Apollo 12 was kind of the bane of our existence and it kept showing up. And it's like, look, you know, Jeff wants 11, Apollo 12 came last. All through this whole process, I had, I downloaded from iTunes the audio from the Apollo program and I kept it with my music on shuffle because that's how I listen to music. And I was always struck how the the Apollo 12 astronauts got a bad deal. They took the same risks. They did the same thing. They went to the same place, but they just did it six months later and nobody cared. <laughs> and, you know, whereas President Nixon flies all the way out to the middle of the Pacific to be on the Hornet or the Wasp and greet the astronauts while they're in quarantine, when they're brought aboard, he can't even be bothered to make a phone call to the guy from Apollo, guys from Apollo 12 he can't remember their names. He invites them. He, he's like, well, you weren't the first person to walk on the moon, but I think you were the first person to sing on the moon. They're like, uh, yes, Mr. President. And, well, I'd like you to come out, come to the White House for a barbecue sometime. And, you know, it's just, they got a raw deal. Um, but we kept finding them, and I think that was their revenge. <laughs> and eventually I got to meet the, the two remaining astronauts um, just before they died, and it was a real treat. Real treat. So, um, I kind of have a special place in my heart for that 2050 engine, the, the, the little orphan, the first one we recovered on the first day, that everybody thought was not from Apollo 11, except for my key guys and I. And we were certain it was from 12 or 11. We were just going to find out, and we were right. And it says 2050 on it. You can see it with the naked eye, and and so. I think that if I have a favorite, it's got to be that one. I just decided. Awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm going to try and well, – whereabouts is 2050? Which which of the museums is 2050? 
It's in Seattle. It's in Seattle, right. I'm gonna, I'll pay a special. I'll pay special homage to it when I, when I finally get out to Seattle. Absolutely, they're still pinching themselves. They don't actually believe it. I said, "No, here it is. Here's the research. Here's how." I, could check. I just did it. Actually, I just gave a talk to kids for the Museum of Flight on uh, Monday and told the kids, "This is how you can tell." And the, and the people from the museum were watching. Going, oh. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's, it's what an absolutely incredible story to actually, to actually a be able to find them, to bring them up, and to yeah, to, to, I guess that that that's a really cool, cool thing that Jeff Bezos has done, hasn't it? To to sort of to to put them in front of school children in particular. Is 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 that how you see their importance in terms of something oh, yes. to inspire? It was it was the basis for this from the very first day. I had two deliverables and only two deliverables. Find and recover the engines from Apollo 11 was the first. And the second was to inspire five-year-olds. Period. That is why we did it. It was always the reason why we did it. Um, people have a hard time believing that sometimes, but that is why we did this project. And I do feel that we did a great job on the first deliverable and not as great a job on the second deliverable in, in the Inspire five-year-olds part because we have not really, we filmed it all, uh, both expeditions in 5K and 4K, which is a lot for 2013. Um, and we have the ability to do more, but we just haven't. So I have, and this I can say I have, I've gone all over the world in the last year and a half Speaking to school children, speaking, I was at the Royal Geographical Society in London on my birthday this day last year, speaking there. I spoke in Iceland, I spoke in Seattle a bunch of times, Washington, Florida, Texas, Alabama. I do Zoom calls like this uh, for students to get the message out, to, to, to try and inspire these kids. Uh, or kids of all ages, really. Yeah. So well, that's awesome. I, I, while you were talking, I've, I've, I'm going to have to wrap this up. We're we're, we're hitting the hour mark now, so <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up. And uh, you mentioned that your uh, you listen to music, and you've got your I can see your Gibson SG in the background there. Uh, so so you're obviously a, a keen guitarist as well. So have you got a particular? We've we've got a space playlist. Obviously, uh, we're, we're we're kind of music industry background, even though we're a space podcast. Uh, we've got a space wow. we've got a space song playlist, and uh, we wondered have you got an exploration song? Any particular song that you really associate with exploration, space exploration? Wow, you stumped me on that one. Uh, Mr. Spaceman is is something I've seen in in, in documentary. That's from the, the era. I uh, have to confess, I listen to punk rock, and I I I played the Clash on the Titanic, and <laughs> maybe they maybe that's sacrilegious to some, but it was okay with me. And the replacements and the Sex Pistols and and uh, Social Distortion and things like that. So uh, space related. I'll have to think about that. That's um, I just you stumped me completely. <laughs> I tell you what's peculiar is that the replacements is literally came up on the on the podcast last week. So <laughs> so so and so you're so you're, you're in good company. I woke the dead with the replacements on the on the Titanic, um, but Keith Richards as well. And uh, you know, gosh, I I really. 
Starman by by David Bowie is is an obvious choice, and a great choice actually, a fantastic choice. Well, we'll let you. Uh, we, norm, have... we normally ban Bowie, but I, I, I I'm going to put I'm going to put I'm going to put I'm going to try and find a replacements track. Is there a particular replacements track that you like? Oh yeah, um, it's not space related. Hey, don't matter. Maybe it is. Bastards of Young. You, you know, um, the, the opening line to that is the. God, what a mess on the ladder of success when you take one step and miss the whole first rung. That was what I thought I would be as a kid. And as a college student listening to the replacements, that's that's how I saw myself. I was going to take one step on the ladder of success and miss the whole first rung. Maybe I did, but I was holding on to the second when it happened. So as I've meandered through life, yeah, I like that. I, I, I think that fits. It's going on. Bastards of it's Young. going. Thank it's you. absolutely going on. Absolutely, Julio. Have you got? Have you got? Have you got a bonus question? You you mentioned you have your heroes in exploration. If you could bring one of them that is not with us anymore from the past to join you into one of your expeditions, who it would, would you be bring? Neil Armstrong? It, be, and I was supposed to. Jeff and I were taking Neil Armstrong on a reconnaissance expedition to this site in 2012. And we got blown out due to the weather, and Neil died a month later. I had met him once. He was a very humble person. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time with his sons, and I was with them on the 50th. But that's somebody who I wish I could have had more than just a conversation with at a dinner one night, you know, just a hello. Uh, he was he's perfect for this the next would be Serenden Hillary who I who I did meet several times and had a, a who I have a deep affection for because he's the he's just an amazing person who who doesn't think highly of himself didn't think highly of himself and I oh, appreciate well, nice that. nice to have a Brit hero there for the <laughs> he wouldn't have said that he didn't like being he didn't like being knighted. He told me that specifically. He, he told a he told a house a, a room full of household names and exploration, including Apollo astronauts. Get <laughs> over yourselves. You're not that special. Oh wow! And he repeated oh, it for right. emphasis, and then talked about how he didn't want to be knighted. But yeah, he's a. <laughs> He's yep. he's a special guy. Well, thanks thanks for thanks very much for for coming on the podcast. It's a, it's a it's a really really fascinating story. It's it's one that kind of I fe- felt passed me by more than it should have done. Oh. And I think uh, yeah, it's 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 about time that we gave it a little bit more of a a push and said that this is actually it's actually incredible and 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 to celebrate yeah to celebrate Apollo and the achievements of people like Lee Solid building those incredible machines. <laughs> So thanks very much, and and happy birthday! Thank you, thank you for making the birthday start really well. I really enjoyed doing this, and 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 I I agree with you. I think we owe these people, men and women of that era, a deep uh, deep gratitude for for what they've done for us and for future generations. It's really it'll. I think it's unmatched. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Brilliant. Bye, gentlemen. Have a great day. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. I Do you know what? I absolutely loved that interview, doing that interview. Great communicator, and I, lo- I, loved, I just love all the different stories and, the, and where he's coming from as well. I love the fact that he, it was all about, 
it was all about exploration and all about actually trying to get the message out about how incredible that generation, like we were talking about Lee Solid, that how incredible that generation are. Yeah, it's absolutely inspiring. And uh, the fact that in with his connections that he got to meet all these legendary people along the way to get some of these things done. It's yeah. absolutely crazy. The, 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 the part, for instance, in which they didn't really talk to, to NASA at all because of the secrecy behind. Mm. I, I think he, he mentions uh, that this is a generation that was used to working in secret. How, uh, yeah, yeah, how we yeah. lost that? How we lost it now everyone, whatever they do, they need to put it on Twitter or Facebook immediately or, or make a podcast about it? Well, we, we don't get to hear about a lot of what Jeff Bezos is doing, do we? So I guess those people are kind of working under the simple, similar sort of secrecy. Oh, it's, there seems to be a lot of parallels, yes. They are, they, they are very, very good at, at keeping things under wraps. And I, I, I like that approach. I like that approach of doing your thing and then talking about it after you have something to show. I, yeah, I, I, I really like that way of working. I, yeah. It must be odd. It must be hard, though, mustn't it? As a scientist, sometimes there must be discoveries that you make that you think, no, this should be correct. <laughs> this should be in the commons of science. That must happen a lot with rocket scientists, where they like that solving the solving the combustion chamber thing. Except, except when you go in areas of, for instance, national defense, in which if you're solving mm. some of these issues, you could give your opponents an advantage. So yeah. you have to see, uh, that's why you have sometimes uh, export control on some technologies, yeah. in particular rocket engines, by the way. <laughs> um, with talking uh, about that, uh, well, of course, Lee Solid keeping his documents on, on, his, on his truck. Amazing, <laughs> amazing that you can get that sort of information like that. But he also mentions a little old German guy at some point. And of course, yeah. that triggers my curiosity of who was this guy. And I have no clue. No, I've, I've got no clue. So, but so I did, I did think. Well, I did think. Well, who was working? Who was German on the Apollo on the Apollo missions on the F one engines? And it, it ends up it could have been one of sixteen hundred German scientists who were brought from the German rocket World War Two rocket manufacturers they were brought over as part of operation paperclip so it it could have been any one of those 1600 rocket scientists brought over as part of that operation thing. paperclip that brought these uh, german scientists to the us yep. uh together with von braun of course the, the, I, I would say the yep. most known one of this of this group um yep. and yeah the you can say they were the, the fathers of of uh, Saturn V and achieving going to the moon. Yeah, it's crazy, it's isn't crazy, it? It's crazy. It's crazy. But I, I mean, I, I mean, those people's lives are even more even more ridiculous than everyone else's. The fact that you know, grown up in Germany through probably a couple of world wars and then go on to be part of the Apollo missions. And just... by that time, you already lived the full life. Yeah, they have, and then they you have... start again from scratch almost in yeah. another country and then you you make history like this yeah i did notice there was one german called dieter grau who died in 2014 at the age of 101 
So it could have been him. There can't have been many can't have been many of these German rocket scientists still alive at that point if he was 101. Yeah, right. It could have been, so, but we have could, no well, idea. Who knows? We who no knows? Idea. So, uh, like, salvaging space, that's what, that's what this made me think of. And, and that's what I wanted. I kind of want to get an expert on this because I've been thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. In the interview, uh, what, according to, to Dave, if you recover something from the ocean... It still mm. belongs to the original owner, but you are entitled to some sort of reward. That's right. But that, once I did a bit of digging, I think that that turned it's that's not quite the full story. And and one of the weird ones, because it's already been done before, and I wish I'd I wish I'd found this out before, was that Gus Grissom's Liberty Bell Seven was pulled up as part of the thirtieth anniversary of Apollo Eleven. So the Discovery Channel helped a guy. Uh, bring Liberty Bell Seven up, which and sunk, uh, which su- yeah by accident there was some malfunction, and was one of the uh, Mercury capsules, yeah that were not recovered right away after landing in the ocean, yeah and and I think because NASA hadn't explicitly um, lost it, as in it wasn't a- expressly abandoned, I think is the is the phrase. That 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 uh, the the Discovery Channel had to get NASA's permission to go and get it, because there's something about this idea that in the Nas- in the Outer Space Treaty, anything that's launched into space remains the jurisdiction of that country that launched it forever, regardless of the condition, whether it's you know broken or whatever. It still belongs to that country. And which is a bit like a sunken warship. You can't go and salvage a warship, apparently. So that that's that that's the bit that I I think needs a little because I was thinking maybe you could apply this salvage thing to getting space debris where you go up and you you go and get a bit of space debris. Because there's another bit of the law as well that's to do with oil tankers. So if an oil tanker breaks up, then as a salvage team, if you went out and tried to stop the oil from going everywhere. You wouldn't get any money at all because you haven't recovered the ship and you haven't recovered the cargo. So I think in 1989, they they, they did a convention that helps salvors get some money for their efforts to stop environmental damage. So you can go out and, and sort of make money by minimizing damage to the environment and then claiming your special compensation for that, which I thought would tie in really really well with going up and and getting some money for getting space debris out of the way but apparently it's not that simple i understand that uh, going up there and recovering space debris as 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 good as your intentions might be i i don't think legally is is that clear cut what can be done or not because you also run into issues of what is actually debris and what might still be active <laughs> yeah. and in use. Can you just go and take any satellite and claim it as debris or not? And I'm most definitely not a space lawyer, so I, I really uh, cannot, cannot really tell you exactly how this would work. However, you did mention items that go into space, hmm. but here we are talking about the F1 engines yeah. that separate with the first stage of the Saturn V. 
And here's another bit of curiosity in a way, because we are looking at the stage separation of the Saturn V, and uh, was it at around 60, 60, how many kilometers yeah. that the Saturn V? Yeah, it was, it was uh, six, 67 kilometers, wasn't it, or something like that. 60, 67. Yeah. So if that was the point in which the, the engines start falling into the ocean, then we can say they did not go to space because they did not reach this artificial line that we call the 100 kilometers. Mm. However, when the stage uh, separates from the rest of the Saturn V, when the first stage separates, of course it, does not, it, it doesn't start going down immediately. It continues on a parabolic flight without its own propulsion because the engines have shut down by then, but it continues on this parabola which you and I were looking to see if it actually reached the 100 kilometers. And then we could say, were the F1s in space or not? And according to some charts that we saw, it's really there almost <laughs> at the 100 kilometers line when it's the top of this parabola. So I don't think we could tell exactly. No, I d and I wonder if it makes a difference whether it tumbles. So as it comes off, if it's still got, if it tumbles, would it, would it get to space or, you know, because there's got to be some weird <laughs> how, how high it would actually get if, if, depending on its orientation as it, as, it, as it stages. Okay, but there is this semi-official definition that you go to space if you hit 100 kilometers, which, yeah, the by the way, the uh, I think now the discussion is to lower it down to something like 80 yeah. kilometers. Well, I think, NASA, I think NASA's is lower than that anyway, isn't it? It's 80 kilometers anyway. Yeah. Wasn't uh, McDowell uh, talking yeah. about this? this yeah, subject? so Jonathan McDowell yeah, d defines it even lower than that, yeah. So maybe, maybe he, can, uh, he can give us uh, the hint here. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, the F1s then land into the, ocean, into the ocean. They get recovered. We know where they ended up. Uh, yeah. It's just... Yeah, okay, I... I, I it's yeah. It's it, what's weird is that 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 whole that whole thing we've we've kind of thought about it. What's the difference between Liberty Bell Seven and and the F one engines? Because Dave Dave didn't have to speak to NASA, whereas the whereas the Discovery Channel did. But you see, they is it, is, is I would it because assume, they I would assume that they knew exactly where the Liberty Bell was. Yeah, or or they never expressly abandoned the Liberty Bell. But Whereas did they, they expressly had ex abandon the F1s? Uh, presumably, yeah, because they, they, they would, you know, they dumped in the ocean. That is like the end of their concern for them, which you know, was crazy as well. That, that, that they didn't even tell the shipping out there that, that they were coming down. All I know from this is that I could have kept asking questions for two more hours. Yeah, no, and I know. we might need yeah. to bring Dave back in the future to ask all these questions. I think we're going to have to. Yeah. There's, uh, there's, there's no too choice. many unanswered questions now. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, and a space lawyer, maybe, at some point. Yeah. Space a space lawyer would law be good. A space, space lawyer would be really good because I think the Outer Space Treaty complicates it. Yes. And I think given the type of conversations that we're having, we should probably have a lawyer with us at all times. At all times, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. Also in that Julio, did you did you spot my my blinding mistake? Which mm. which which I will get some complaints about. I think I did, <laughs> but I don't want to put you in the spotlight. Okay. So if you want to go for it, 
Edmund Hillary, of course, is a Kiwi and a very proud Kiwi he was too. And they are immensely proud of Edmund Hillary in, in New Zealand, I think. I think he's like a bit of a national icon. What I meant with with him being British, of course, was the fact that he went with he was the part of the British expedition that went to the top of Everest. <laughs> that's my that's my um that's my uh That's excuse. your excuse. That's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so I've got I've I I have to announce um, a couple of winners. So Robert C. Jacobson was on, was on um, the podcast a couple of episodes ago with his new book "Spaces Open for Business," and I opened it up that people needed to retweet a tweet that I'd done. And there are two winners, and all they have to do is send me their um, send me their addresses via however they want to get in contact with me. Info at interplanetary.org.uk would be fine. Or via the website, Matt Bell, Matt Bell, Matt underscore Bell one wins, and so does Jorn Verktli. That's at J O R N V O E G T L I. You both get a free copy of the of the book if you just if you just email me your um, address. I'll get them sent out. Job done. Congratulations, guys. Yeah, they they win. It's a great book as well. I really like it. It's it's to- it totally covers this whole new space thing. If you want to invest in space, I reckon it's a pretty handy book to uh, read first. Yeah, there we go, Julio. You've made it to the end. It wasn't too bad, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't too horrific, was it? I was melting in my chair during the <laughs> full time of how nervous I am about this. <laughs> when, I when hope you... it. I hope it doesn't show. No, when you see how beautifully I edit it, you'll go, how on earth did Matt make me seem so intelligent? I can do nothing that, about the handsomeness. That I want to see, yes. I, I have to say, listeners, Julio's a very handsome man. He's, he's almost wasted on podcasts. <laughs> how, to... how, how, uh, how do I even answer to that, man? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I am absolutely blushing right now. You're you're uh, too nice, Matt. You're too nice. Right, ah, uh, Julio, you're going to be back. You're going to be back soon for another episode because we've got an amazing interview for the next one. Yes, yes, and 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 she has done some really amazing things in her career in both space and ocean, exactly. following Julio's theme. So you may be able to guess who it is, but we'll keep you guessing. Right. Uh, you can you can try to to guess uh, on uh, replying to the in the in the Twitter as yeah. as young kids say <laughs> the Twitter. <laughs> you'll have to wait a couple of you'll have to wait a couple of episodes because uh, next week is Sarah Crudus, who's an awesome space a space um, journalist and space person, new space. Um, consultant, I believe, as well, and she's she's done a bit of work for you, hasn't she? Or was it Ariane she worked for? Uh, I think Sarah was uh, co-hosting uh, some shows done by Ariane Group for Ariane Five launches. Yep. Yes, I, I think I think she was doing that. Yep. And and then the week after, we got Eric Berger. So I love Eric Berger. Yeah, Eric is the absolute. He's he's so so cool. He absolutely went off on one for this interview, so it's really, really good. My mind was totally blown because <laughs> we'd just done the Dave Concannon interview, and then I went straight into Eric, and and so I was 
my mind was truly blown by two amazing people. So uh, by the end of the interview, you can hear me barely be able to talk. <laughs> well, I can't wait to, to, to listen to that interview. Uh, yeah, and then, and then Julio will be back, I guess, for episode 204. You're the boss. You'll have to wait to see who's next week's um, surprise, surprise guest host. Julio, where do people have to go if they want to learn more about the podcast? Well, you would have to go to interplanetary.org.uk. Oh, brilliantly said. Or if you want to go to uh, be a patron, you can just go to patreon forward slash patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. It's that simple. Or if you just type in the interplanetary podcast into Google, you, you can't go wrong. It'll, it'll bring us up. It'll bring us up. Or if you just put space podcast into Google, it will come up pretty quick. Yeah, so, I think it comes first. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, For everyone. That, that's how we're rocking it. Um, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Julio, for being the guest host. You've been absolutely awesome, of course. And thanks very much to the, uh, the Spodcats. What are you doing this weekend, Julio? Well, th- first, thanks, thanks, Matt, for having me. This has mm-hmm. been an uh, excruciating experience. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this weekend just quiet at home just family life I need some of that we moved countries recently and we need to find our our new our new normal here wow yeah I mean you're certainly quite an an international man of mystery and now that you mentioned the international man of mystery I always carry a scuba diving equipment in the trunk of my car Wow. Just like your national hero and historical figure, 007. The, the Argentinian James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is like the worst way to end the podcast Yeah, it is ever, the worst right? way. Right, I, 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 got... I hope you're cutting most of this. <laughs> Obviously. Thanks, Matt, for having me. This has been really a wonderful experience. <laughs> Uh, much easier than what I expected. It, it's, yeah. it's so much easier to be in a podcast when the other person is doing all the hard work. So I really appreciate. And now I see the effort that you have to go through to, to get one of these one of these babies out. So yeah, uh, kudos to you. And Kud- I, I'm going to say kudos I, to I you, love, Julio. I love what you guys do with the show and I'll, I'll keep listening and I'll be happy to jump in whenever you need me. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm definitely happy to have you back lots of times. This has been an epic episode, Julio. Thanks very much. And thanks very much to Spodcats. Bye-bye, Spodcats! Bye! Bye.